Merry Christmas and welcome back to Encounter God's Truth. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd, and today author and Bible teacher Dr. John Whitcomb is going to take us to Micah chapter 5 to tell us about an astounding prediction of the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. This prophecy not only pinpoints the location of the Messiah's birth, it also intersects with important prophetic truth regarding the entire nation of Israel and indeed the world. To explain the significance of these ideas, our teacher will also take us to Revelation chapter 12. We invite you to follow along in your Bibles as we examine how the Christmas message is the only sure hope that we have, just as it was when it was first revealed through the prophets long ago. Now, here is Dr. Whitcomb with this week's message, An Astounding Voice, from Micah chapter 5. Friends, at this Christmas season, it's amazing to think of where Jesus, our Savior, was actually born when he added a human nature to his divine nature and became one person with two natures for the first time and, yes, forevermore on this planet Earth in the womb of a virgin named Mary. Now, this is all predicted, of course, in Isaiah and his contemporary prophet in Jerusalem, Micah, 700 years before Christ came. Here's what Micah said about it. Listen carefully. But as for you, Bethlehem... Ephrathah, Bethlehem, the house of bread, Ephrathah, the province in which Bethlehem was located, meaning fruitful. For you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're so small, you're so tiny, you're so insignificant as a town. But nevertheless, listen to this, from you, one will go forth. For me, God the Father says he's going to send one forth through the womb of Mary in Bethlehem's manger, to be what? To be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from of long ago, from days of eternity. Now that is how God identifies this one who be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He's one who's been going forth from long ago. In fact, from the beginning of human history. When Adam sinned against God, along with Eve, they heard the footsteps of the pre-incarnate Christ, Malach Yahweh, the messenger of the Lord, coming toward them. That was always the second person of the Godhead who became Jesus, our Savior. He was reaching out, confronting, dealing with, even one night wrestled half the night with Jacob in the river Jabbok. Amazing, trying to get him to repent and surrender to the will and mind and purpose and priority of God in his life. He appeared to Abraham and Sarah, remember, and told them that she would have a child. Over and over and over, for hundreds of years, he appeared and then disappeared. And finally, 2,000 years ago, friend, in Bethlehem, he became a permanent, genuine, 100% human being, a member of the human race. Why? To be able to die for us as our genuine kinsman redeemer, our physical, genetic relative who represented us on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away, expiates the sin of the world. Now, that happened in Bethlehem. I'm always amazed, aren't you, friends, that never in his public ministry did Jesus say, well, I was born in Bethlehem. My mother was a virgin. That would invite people to to ridicule, of course, because uh, in due time, when they recognized his saving message, believed in his finished work on the cross, confirmed by his resurrection, then they could go back and check the place of his birth, and it was recorded carefully by Dr. Luke and his gospel, as, of course, uh, Matthew as well. So Bethlehem, the place where the eternal God of the universe, a tiny town even in Judea, to say nothing of a tiny planet called Earth, 
not even the biggest planet in the solar system, not the biggest star in our galaxy, but to this humble, tiny place he came down. As Psalm 113 says, he, he humbles himself to even find the universe, and he came down to find poor, wretched, helpless people to minister to. Now, when you read that statement about Bethlehem, friends, and how he had been going forth for hundreds and hundreds of years to reach people, to meet people in desperate need, finally he became a permanent part of us. Incarnation. He became a human being. Just like John 1 uh, tells us, the word, that's Jesus, the Logos, the communicator of the mind of God to the minds of men, the word became flesh, became human, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, friends, finally, finally, the second person who was the messenger of God to humans for hundreds of years appeared as a permanent member of the human race, no longer called the messenger of God because he is now, what, the incarnate son of God on the earth. Now, the fascinating thing to me about all of this is that this is a foretaste, you see, of the second coming. Why? The Old Testament prophets never knew there would be a time gap between the first and second coming. They didn't realize. As we know now, of course, it's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus, God's Son, died and rose again uh, in Jerusalem. And yet, during this church age, which is a mystery hidden from ages past, Paul said in Ephesians 3, is now about to end. And soon, soon, friends, perhaps sooner than many of us realize, the Lord will come and take the church away and deal with the church separately at the bema, the judgment throne of Christ, to purge, cleanse, prepare her for the wedding at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year great tribulation period, and prepares to rule and reign with him as kings and priests for a thousand years in the kingdom age. He's preparing a bride, the church. But what's he doing for Israel? Now listen to this. Micah 5, 3. Therefore he will give them up as he is now. He's given them up as a nation, you remember. He cut them off of the olive tree of divine blessing in Romans 11 because of their unbelief, the rejection of Messiah, with few exceptions. They rejected him. And they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And Jesus said, henceforth I leave your house desolate and you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not I've given you up forever, but until you say, I believe in you, Lord Jesus. Now, Micah goes on to explain it this way. Micah 5.3 Therefore he will give them up until, not forever, notice, until the time when she who is in labor, that's Israel, personified in Mary, of course, when she who is in labor has borne a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Now, that's amazing. Did you know that Micah and his contemporary prophet Isaiah were fascinated with how God would bring the nation supernaturally, suddenly, back to himself. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 66, his final chapter, verse 7. Before she travailed, that's the future nation of Israel now, the painless birth of a nation in one day. Now listen how that's going to happen during the tribulation through the preaching of the two witnesses. Before she travailed, that is, entered the great tribulation, she brought forth... Before her pain came, she gives birth to a boy. 
In other words, when the nation is born again, they'll discover, of course, that their Savior came from a virgin whose name was Mary. And before she as a nation traveled, all of a sudden she has children. Really? Look at verse 8. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth at once? Now listen, as soon as Zion traveled, that's the great tribulation that's coming for Israel, she brought forth her sons. Really? How is that going to happen? Well, friends, when we turn to the book of Revelation, we see this all presented so carefully. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in the heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. That represents, of course, Israel symbolically and her 12 tribes in the personification of a woman. Now look. And she was with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And another angel appeared in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven presumably at the beginning of the world he led one third of all angels away from God and they became demons and he threw them to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth he might devour her child Satan was going to kill the baby Jesus what happened though she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, remember, as far as the book of Revelation is concerned, something special is going to happen to Israel in the first half of the 70th week of Daniel. They're going to suddenly turn to Jesus as their Messiah. They'll hardly any travail. They'll believe in him. They'll trust in him. The whole nation, Isaiah 11 says, all Israel will be saved. They'll be grafted back into the branch of divine Abrahamic new covenant blessing at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. And so what's going to happen? She gave birth to a, a son, a male child, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now, what's going to happen? Listen carefully. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for a thousand two hundred and sixty days. The last half of the 70th week of Daniel, this born-again, regenerated, saved nation who will believe in Jesus will be protected by God from Satan's ravenous, destructive power and wrath and anger against her. He wants to devour that child, that nation of Israel. And what's going to happen to Satan then? Look at this. Revelation twelve seven. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels, Michael the chief archangel of the righteous ones, waging war with the dragon, that's Satan, and the dragon and his angels wage war. And they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels, that's the demons, were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice of heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and of the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, now listen, who accuses them before our God day and night. Jesus has an infinite case 
against Satan, but he allows him to accuse us night and day, and he answers every accusation in his mercy and grace and love toward us with groanings which cannot be uttered by the Holy Spirit. And what's going to happen to Satan in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel that's coming? It says they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And so, friends, this child that Mary brings forth, namely Jesus, who has ascended to heaven to the right hand of God, will through Michael the archangel cast Satan out of the third heaven, where he's been accusing us night and day since the beginning of the world. I'm amazed at what's going to happen. Now, what's going to happen to Israel, the child of Mary, in the personification of that nation? Now, listen to carefully Revelation 12:13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, that's baby Jesus, of Mary. And the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away by the flood. And the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Listen to this concluding statement now. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. That's Mary representing the whole nation of Israel, see, that brought forth this child and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, other Jews, who keep the commandment of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So you see, friends, what Christmas means. It means God graciously sent his son to redeem that nation of Israel and through Israel to redeem the nations of the world. Because when Israel comes back to God, beginning very soon now perhaps, he will use that nation to win to preach the gospel to all nations of the world. Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed to all nations, and then shall the end come. So God is preparing through Israel 144,000 missionaries, perhaps sent out 72,000 two-man gospel teams to tell the world about Messiah Christ. The church is gone, but the Gentiles are here to listen and to believe the message, and millions of them will believe and perhaps suffer death because of their antagonism and hatred and rejection of the Antichrist. So when you go back, friends, at the beginning of this Christmas message in Micah 5, you begin to realize, my, this is an amazing aftermath, which the Old Testament, of course, did not see the church age, 2,000 years of the church. He saw that as soon as Jesus comes into the world in Bethlehem through Mary, it's the beginning of the regeneration of Israel at the coming of the two witnesses when the church is gone. And I say, well, thank you, Lord, for this powerful message of what Christmas really means. Satan should tremble at the very thought that God in his love gave his only begotten son that whoever simply believes in him, trusts in him, should not perish, but have right now everlasting life. And I say, Lord, thank you for the message of Christmas. God has sent his son to solve our infinite eternal problem of sin that separates us from a thrice holy God. And so, friends, for that nation of Israel, the coming of the Messiah to Bethlehem was an amazing answer to prayer of those in the remnant, like the parents of John the Baptist, like the humble shepherds, 
like Mary and Joseph, like Anna and Simeon and others who believed. Yes, Father, we're amazed at how you provided for that need in a time just like that. And I say, Father, you are never behind, never ahead. You're always in the fullness of time at the right time to say the right thing to the people who need to hear that message. And so I ask, friend, do you understand what Bethlehem then means? You know, Jesus never mentioned Bethlehem in his public ministry, never mentioned his virgin birth because he wants us to believe in him first as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. And then we can understand how all of this worked out in fulfillment to the very letter of the words of Isaiah and Micah about his first coming in Bethlehem through a virgin mother. I say thank you, Lord, for this powerful Christmas message. How do I tune into this? How does this affect me personally? Well, just as Israel someday must believe, and they will believe, remember in Matthew 17, Jesus said, Elijah must come first and do what? Restore all things. How could he say that? Because he knew that all Israel believed the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, which said an amazing thing, amazing thing about the end of the world. Let me read it to you. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded to him in Horeb, that's at Sinai for all Israel. Remember Moses. Now look, who else is Israel to remember? Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great, the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Cherem, the last Hebrew word of the Old Testament. You have a choice, friends. A curse or what? Eternal salvation. Salvation through whom? Not through our efforts, our education, our achievements, our brilliance, our scientific knowledge. But what? Through humble, desperate repentance before God and an acceptance of His love gift of a Savior who paid in full the price we could never pay. So I say, well, thank you, Lord. Thank you for sending Elijah the prophet again to win that nation back to you. And Jesus said, Elijah will come. He will come and will restore all things, just like Malachi said he would, beginning in the home with parents and children, children and parents, repenting, turning in love to each other as the first fruits of what? Eternal salvation. Well, this is the final message in our Christmas series on the voices of the Christmas prophets. Remember, you can hear all four of these messages again at sermonaudio.com forward slash Whitcomb. You can also read some companion devotions by Dr. Whitcomb called God's Whispers of Christmas on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Whitcomb Ministries. Now it's time for our Bible question, and Dr. Whitcomb, you've shown us today that the Hebrew prophets saw the two comings of Christ as being very closely related. This is so different from the way we often approach the subject. Can you help our listeners gain a deeper understanding of the parallels between the first coming of Christ and his second coming, which is still in the future? Friends, at this Christmas season, we're all thinking back, aren't we, to when Jesus, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, appeared on this earth for the first time as a genuine member of the human race, as well as the eternal God. But you see, the prophets of the Old Testament, and even Jesus himself, predicted the coming of the kingdom in the future. 
The first coming, obviously, implies there's going to be a second coming. And the Old Testament prophets saw no clear distinction between the two. In fact, after Jesus had taught the disciples for three and a half years about the kingdom and how to get into it by repentance, genuine change of heart, listen to the first thing they asked him when he arose from the dead in Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, Acts 1, 6, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They had looked forward to that. They knew what it was going to be like from the Old Testament and what Jesus had told them. And listen to his answer. He said to them, It is not for you to know that the, the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He didn't say there won't be a kingdom. He said it's not for you to know when it's going to happen. But in the meantime, until that comes, here's what you're to do. And that includes you and me, dear friends. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you should be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Now listen, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And then, of course, he ascended to heaven. That was sort of the final great commission that Jesus left with his apostles. Just like he had said, you remember, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in the Great Commission there to the church, that we are to do it, make disciples of what? Of all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever he's commanded us, and then what? And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You do what I say, say you're to do between now and then. You're to preach the gospel to all nations, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of his Son, and of the blessed Holy Spirit, and you're to tell everybody everything I've ever said. And in the perfect timing of God, that kingdom will come. Friends, I'm ready for the kingdom, aren't you, at this Christmas time? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the first coming. We're looking for your second coming now. L listen, friends, to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, about the kingdom that's coming. He said, When you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Recognize who he is, who's going to bring this kingdom. Not human efforts, not the government, not educators, not politicians, but who God the Father will bring it in. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth, not some other planet or some other part of the universe, but right here. As he came to the earth at his first coming at Christmas, He's coming to this earth again at his second coming to establish his kingdom. He said, you pray for this. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I say, Lord, I'm just amazed at this prayer and how you have, are planning, in other words, to bring in the kingdom in answer to the prayers of your people. And help me, therefore, be a prayer warrior, night and day, as it were, incessantly saying, Lord, please bring the kingdom. But that doesn't mean we just sit down and do nothing. We reach out to people, don't we, who have desperate need of a Savior and tell them who Jesus is and he's the coming King of kings and Lord of lords who will rule the world in holiness and perfection and love and grace. That's the meaning of Christmas. God sent him and God is going to send him again. And dear friend, I ask this question as I ask myself, are we ready to receive him when he comes in glory, perhaps today? And so, friends, at this Christmas season, we've been listening to the voices, the wonderful voices from ancient times, announcing, preparing us to believe that God's own Son would arrive on the earth, be born in Bethlehem of a virgin mother, and finally die on a cross, and his atoning work 
confirmed by his resurrection from the dead. You know, friends, we want to be like those two who are looking for the consolation of Israel when he first came. You see, before Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins, thousands, yes, millions from the beginning of the world had trusted God, believed God, like Adam and Eve, uh, Enoch, remember, the seventh from Adam, Noah and his family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the way down through the centuries. Those people who believed in God's word, who trusted in him, were saved by credit. And I say, thank you, Lord. Friends, are you one? I want to be one who is looking for the redemption of the nation of Israel, yes, but of the whole world. God so loved the world, he gave his son, that we might be saved through him. That's the dynamic of the Christian message for Christmas. Are you one of those dear friends whom God will bless today? Thank you, Dr. Whitcomb. You're listening to Encounter God's Truth from Whitcomb Ministries. Our website is whitcombministries.org. I want to remind you to follow our Countdown to Christmas at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb, where we're featuring different messages for this special season each day from now until Christmas. At this holiday time, we want to take a moment and thank you, all of our listeners. Your continuing enthusiasm for this ministry is a wonderful motivation for us to bring you more of Dr. Whitcomb's clear Bible teaching. As we approach the end of the year, it's so important for all of us to remember that God's Word remains true from the beginning to the end. Now, for Dr. John Whitcomb and every one of us here at Encounter God's Truth, I'm Wayne Shepherd, praying you'll have a wonderful Christmas weekend.